Welcome back to What the Fertility Season 2. Today we're sitting down with Katie, who's going to share her story through endometriosis, miscarriage, a low sperm morphology diagnosis that did improve, as well as some accidental pregnancies, her birth story, and everything that followed. Welcome, Katie. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. We're so so excited. So, so excited. Amanda and I are both so excited. We wanted to say it at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, really, I'm excited too. I love listening to you guys every week. I love it. We'll really give you the floor. I mean, kind of that intro tells a little into it, but obviously most people that are diagnosed with endometriosis, that's kind of where that fertility journey starts. Would that be the same for you guys? Not at all. Um, it was closer to the end when we had that diagnosis. Um, wow. So kind of where it all started, we got married June of 2019. Um wanted to start a family right away. So I stopped taking birth control in the spring. I think it was like March. So I wanted it to be fully out of my system before getting married. And I was really naive. I even talked during the wedding about how like tonight we're getting knocked up. I didn't even know if I was ovulating or not. So I was just like gung-ho wanted to get pregnant immediately. Um, Obviously it didn't really happen that way. Every month went by, I was doing temperature checks. There was like a device that when you spit on it, if you look at this spit under a microscope, it tells you if you're ovulating or not. I mean, anything that I was like a marketing dream, just buying into (laughs) anything. Um, and December came around. So, you know, six months hadn't gotten pregnant. Um, and you know, they tell you to wait to the one year mark, but I was just really, really worried about it. So met with, uh, my OB as like a family planning appointment, wanted to get some tests done, he thought I was crazy type a, but he wrote all the scripts anyways, to have the semen analysis and the blood work. Um, and we actually ended up getting pregnant that night, which is strange. I remember, cause it was Christmas Eve, the doctor appointment. And then when we counted everything back, that's that night it happened. Wow. Um, so we found out January that we were pregnant and it was just such a relief that, okay, it can happen. Um, and unfortunately that ended with a miscarriage at eight weeks. Um, but you know, obviously as sad as that is, there was like the silver lining of, okay, the fear of it not happening is kind of gone. Obviously it will happen because it happened once. So let's not worry about it and just keep trucking along and it'll happen this year. Um, and it did not happen. So for a whole another year, it was September when I was like, that's it. I'm going in to the doctor. That has to be so hard, like being so type A and like just then getting a taste of pregnancy and then like for a year. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I didn't even know, you know, you learn so much along the way with all of this. I didn't know how common miscarriages were. And so it happened to me. And then I was trying to find any support online and I realized it was like one in four. And I was like, wow, I wouldn't have gotten so excited. You know, I would have been a little more cautious. I was planning my gender reveal, like. Yeah. So I, the I day after. Too. Yeah, I did too. I remember my first pregnancy, I got pregnant in May and I was like, I'm going to do a gender reveal on July 4th and it's going to be yeah. on colors. It's going to be on the beach. And these are the people that are going to come. And then you're yeah. like, okay, none of that is important. I remember right. I literally contacted, cause I like, there's this company called alpha lit that does like the big signs, like the letters. And I contacted them for like my like baby shower already when I was literally like six weeks pregnant. And then I had yep. an email back saying, Hey, sorry, never mind. Oh. I literally lost the pregnancy. So like, so I know like, it's so easy to go like gung ho down oh, a rabbit hole sure. and just fantasize about all the details every day. And then well, bam, yeah. it's not a thing anymore. Um, 
but yeah, so I think too, like another really hard piece of that, that I wasn't expecting was like knowing a due date, right? Like they give you an estimated due date. So in my mind, I was like, surely it was just, it was a uh, September 21st. I was like, surely by then I'll be pregnant again. Yeah. So when that approached and like, that was probably one of the hardest days of the whole journey is like having that day and still not being pregnant. And that's kind of what I said was if we get to, you know, the due date, what would have been, and we're still not like, that's when I'm going to a fertility clinic. Um, so then that's what we did. And we had a lot of testing done, obviously, you know, like a ton of blood panels, um, semen analysis. My AMH was super high. Um, it was like 11.9. Um, so they were, you know, concerned it was not PCOS, but they thought it was an ovulation problem where too many eggs ovulated, but none of them were mature. Um, so that was one thought that we would do like letrozole to do a medicated cycle. And then strange enough, the semen analysis had low morphology. So none of the sperm had heads or tails. Like they were none? just all deformed. Right. Oh, wow. They were just all deformed, very strange. Um, and so when we sat down with our fertility doctor, um, she basically said it's probably poison, arsenic of some sort, mercury poisoning, lead poisoning. And once we figured out what what he was being poisoned by and we fixed it, it would only take a few months for them to improve. Wait, so what? yeah, it was bizarre. So we were like, who's poisoning you? Your, yeah, poor husband. <laughs> Your poor husband's like, okay, I thought we were just trying to have a baby. Now someone's poisoning. Me. <laughs> I know he probably was like secretly thinking I was poisoning him or something. I don't know. Um, so we were so confused and she was explaining a couple of instances, our doctor, with other patients of, you know, one of them, uh, one of our patients had something similar and it was mercury poisoning and he was eating too much tuna sushi and that's what was causing it. Or another guy, it was like something in his plastic straw from his water cup. So we, I mean, we went through every pot and pan and cup in our house. We had our water tested. We did so much trying to figure out like, where was this poison coming from? And Katie, this before you, this was before you moved, right? Oh yeah. Most yeah. of everything we went through was when we were still in Florida. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, so then we go in for a repeat and it improved. So that was no longer the reason we weren't getting pregnant. So as we're doing all of this, I'm taking letrozole. We're doing medicated cycles, like timed intercourse, medicated cycles. So then we go from that being the reason to unexplained infertility. So we did multiple months of the timed intercourse with medication, and then we moved into medicated cycles with IUI. And so probably did that for four months until a friend of mine recommended a different doctor. I was kind of getting fed up. My wait times there were three, four hours sometimes just to get a blood draw. So oh it was God. like really taking a toll. I was like crying in the lobby three, sure. day, three days a week. <laughs> just yeah. like, you have to go. You can't just yeah. like not go. Oh yeah. It's like, what's your choice? You know, if you leave, yeah. you're not going to get pregnant this month. You know, it's, if you want to babysit here and deal with it. And wow. yeah. So I got a second opinion, transferred all my, you know, test results over, um, and the guy sat down with us and basically said, without even going into an exam room, looking at all of your test results, I am 99% sure you've got endometriosis 
And once you get that cleaned up, you'll get pregnant, which I hadn't heard one word of in the nine months I had been treated from the other clinic. Wow. That's so crazy. I feel like, oh, oh my gosh. That's yeah. I mean, it's, you wake up one morning thinking that there's no reason you're just not getting pregnant. You're doing all these, you know, cycles and then bam. Oh, if I fix this issue, I didn't know existed yesterday. I'll have a better shot. So crazy. Really, really crazy. Um, and all the IUIs I was doing, he said basically like they're they're not gonna work because of the endometriosis. I mean, they could, but until you fix the endometriosis, I don't there's not really a point in trying all these yeah, IUIs. We're so frustrating because like all of the money, all of the emotions, like all the time you put into it, like that's gotten mm-hmm. for a doctor that instantly just be like, oh no, it's probably this. Yeah, yeah. they're thinking he's been poisoned, you know. <laughs> The roller coaster for the guys too. <laughs> Absolutely. So around that point, um, we found out that our insurance didn't, um, wasn't covered at that clinic. Of course, it was only the previous clinic we had issues with. Um, so we had to sit down with that doctor and basically say, we got a second opinion. Why didn't you ever bring this up? Um, the only way it can be diagnosed is through a laparoscopy surgery, Um, and our doctor basically told us she, I don't know if it's part of their training, but they're not supposed to encourage a laparoscopy surgery to find out about endometriosis, unless there's been two failed rounds of IVF. That's weird. IVF is first and then a laparoscopy comes second. I don't know if it has to do with insurance because doing IVF is less risky for the woman than going under anesthesia for a laparoscopy. Oh gosh, it's wasted. It's like such a wasted, like couple wasted rounds. That's what I don't understand. Like you're not giving you then the best chance. Right. Exactly. It it doesn't make any sense. It it didn't feel like it was customized care. It felt like I'm just following these guidelines and you know, but because I brought it to her attention, she said, you are a great candidate. You probably do have endometriosis now that you bring it up. So let's go ahead and do a laparoscopy surgery if you're requesting one. And I said, yeah, I am. And three days later, I had a laparoscopy um, with her. Like it all happened within five days. I got the second opinion. I met with her and was upset about her not, you know, suggesting it and then was under the knife for a laparoscopy. Yeah. And can you speak to that? Because like, I know I got to a point in my journey where I'm like, gosh, maybe I have endometriosis. Like, why can't I sustain a pregnancy? But to your point, and I'd love to hear you talk about it. It is an invasive procedure. It is. And I didn't really have any, um, I think it's one of those things too. People will ask you, doctors have asked me anytime I go to the OB before ever wanting to get pregnant, just going for birth control or a pap smear. Do you have endometriosis? No. No one's told me I have endometriosis. So how would I know if I do or don't? Cause you didn't have um, it in the silent too. Yours was silent. Yes. Right? Yeah. So I didn't have any pain. All those commercials you see explaining the symptoms. I didn't have any of them and no doctor said I had it. So I just never thought of it. Um, but I will say when I stopped birth control in the spring before I got married, every period was a little worse than the one before. Interesting. And I think that's why I got pregnant on my own six months into being married, you know, same year of stopping birth control. But then the following year I didn't it with even more chances. And I think it's because when you're on birth control or when you're pregnant, endometriosis is kind of at bay. And then when you're not, and especially when you're taking medications like letrozole, that's like miracle grow apparently for endometriosis. So the meds you need for IVF or for IUIs 
make the endometriosis significantly worse. So and it's you had just, just like, gone through multiple, I mean, you'd almost gone through a year of medicated like plus IUI. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty crazy, but they, yeah, they went in there and, um, I did have endometriosis. It wasn't severe at all, but it was like all over one of my ovaries. That was the only place it was located was on an ovary. Wow. That's so they like ablazed it, right? What they, they go through your belly button and it's just very creepy. I, I have to watch every surgery on video before I have it done to me. My husband thinks I'm a nightmare. So like I put, I put it up on the TV and like watch someone else get the surgery the night before. So I just was prepared for what oh, was happening. So funny. <laughs> yeah. It's a real problem. Um, but yeah, it's, it was really not that bad. I was at the beach like two days later. Um, I know not everyone has that experience. I had minor endometriosis. I have friends who had more serious, longer, you know, procedures, and it was a, a lot harder recovery. Um, but they go through your belly button. They kind of blow air up in your abdomen so that they can see around they find endometriosis and then they ablaze it so they kind of like burn it off they push a little trash bag down your belly button they use um they cut a couple of different uh slits around your abdomen so that they can get in with tools and then they ablaze they burn pieces off put it in the little trash bag inside of you tie it off and then slip it back up. When I told you to explain the procedure, I did not know you knew it that well. That is, oh, I'm basically, I'm like, you know, like I can basically do a doctor. <laughs> I mean, you watched the video. So you definitely, you had it done and you knew, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. I had no idea that was like how it was done. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool. Yeah. It really That's is kind of cool. They can do all that. And like your incision is like the tiniest little thing. I mean, I can't even see where any of those incisions were. I feel like that's so like, that gives so many people like hope or like, at least it like, doesn't make them terrified. Well, maybe it makes them more terrified that a trash is going in there. But if it was me, I'd be like, okay, like, you know, okay. So you got out, you had endo and the doctor was like, wow, you were right. I'm sorry. So then we kept going with IUIs. (laughs) And at this point, um, there was an accidental pregnancy in the family. So it's like, we were just completely buried underwater every single day. It's been over a year now medicated. I'm all kinds of cranky and hormonal with all the meds. Mm -hmm. And we found out that one of our siblings, um, was having an accidental pregnancy. Um, and the timing was just obviously really, really terrible. It's something that you want to be happy for people but it was like gut-wrenching, devastating. Like my life is over kind of feeling in the moment. Had you shared with your family? Oh, sorry, Amanda. No, no, no. You can go ahead. Yeah. We had shared, um, we had like group messages basically, you know, so they knew when IUIs were like, good luck at your IUI today. So it was, you know, there was definitely good support there. And we were the only people in the family trying and had been trying. Everyone else was a few years off from that. Um, so it was, yeah, it was definitely a shock. Um, and you know, it was kind of like, so it just, it was just like a very foreign, uh, thing to go through because you want to be excited. And then when you're pissed off and devastated that someone you care about and love is starting their family, you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible person. So having to like cope with that and then, you know, baby showers, gender reveals, all those things, it just, it's hard. Um, but I think that that's like an important thing that I pass along to like friends of mine who are going through infertility that you just have to like, look out for yourself, you know? So I, I removed myself from a lot of 
group messages or didn't join certain things because no one else is looking out for you, but you. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's so important, especially because like you can't really control much through this whole, whole journey. And that is something you can control. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like you said, you have to look out for yourself. Like, yeah. you know, yourself and what you can handle and what's going to be triggering. And I mean, if you need a baby shower, then don't go. And if it hurts yeah. someone's feelings, like that's on them. Like you have to do at the end of the day, what's going to be like the best for you and your family. And yeah, a hundred percent. The whole, the whole process is hard enough uh, as it is. You don't need to add anything in there. That's not necessary. You have to go see the doctor. You have to get procedures done. You have to take the medications. You have to try, um, but you don't have to show up in that way for other people if it doesn't serve you in the moment. So that was a, a big learning curve there, um, for most of the journey. Um, but after we got that diagnosis and had the, uh, the ablation and the endometriosis was removed, we went right back into medicated cycles. My husband got promoted and moved to Charleston. So now we're doing this from different States. Cause you oh, stayed with your, oh, oh, did you stay in Florida? I did. Well, in his company, when they promote you and move you, it's basically like 30 days. So we put our house on the market, but like we hadn't started packing yet. We were still showing it with the realtor. Um, I was still working in Florida. So we had a couple of months where he was up in Charleston. I was still in Florida. And if you know much about IUIs, you need the guy's sperm for that. (laughs) So I'm being medicated. I'm letting him know, Hey, the follicles are looking good. It's probably going to be, you know, next Thursday or Friday. So it's all like, yeah, it's not like it is Thursday. It's, it might be Thursday. Oh, you don't know until the day before, you know, it depends on how, how your follicles are growing. You could guess. He had to just what fly in and like, Mm -hmm. And I had done, you know, four or five of these at this point. So I had a really good understanding of like, all right, usually if I'm at, if my follicles are this size, it's three days later. So I gave him my best guess and he would talk, you know, new job, new boss. Hey, I got to get on a plane. I can't work Thursday, Friday, whatever would fly down. And the first time we did one while he was out of town, um, it kept getting pushed. So he was supposed to return to work and he had to change his flight like four times because it was started growing so slow. They're like one more day, Katie. And oh, then we trigger. that's such added stress. It was crazy. It was crazy. Luckily though, um, that was our last hoorah with the IUI. We were absolutely done with it by, by the time that I was able to move to Charleston. Um, and first week in Charleston met with a doctor here and he said to us, you guys are going to have a baby. You're going to carry the baby. Everything you've done was kind of pointless because you had endometriosis. Even when they ablazed it, you still have endometriosis. It's just the naked eye can't see it. So there's no point in you doing anything else. You're only going to get pregnant. You have a very, very, very small chance of getting pregnant if it's not IVF. So let's start IVF. Which was great to hear because no doctor had ever said like this is going to happen for you, right? That's so interesting that they too just like were like let's do IUIs because you normally hear them limiting at three. Were they like let's try it again because now we've taken care, quote unquote, taken care of the endo? Right, and it's just so crazy that you think like both of these people are MDs. Like, how is it that there's three different doctors that I've worked with throughout our fertility journey, and all three of them have had just completely different advice or protocols that would have made a difference? 
So definitely got to shop around and get yeah. other opinions. If it's like stagnant, you're like, I keep doing the same thing and nothing's changing. Um, but yeah, so we, we started IVF, uh, like the fourth day we lived in Charleston boxes all over the place, hadn't unpacked. And, you know, you start with the birth control, which makes no sense, but <laughs> like a month and a half of birth control. Um, and at that same time, you know, we were in new jobs. So it's just really, really crazy to do all of the shots plus like work travel. It's just scheduling all of it. It's like a second job really. And Katie, um, I don't, I mean, we can edit this out, but you have such a cool job, but it's such a job that you can't hide that. Like you're either pregnant or that you're trying to get pregnant. Right. Cause it's right. Yeah. Well, at, the time, at the time I was working for a tequila seltzer company. So I covered the Southeast and, um, I, I just, I really, I was so antsy and anxious. Like, I don't want to waste one month. Like I'm not going to wait to do IVF even though it probably would have made sense. We had like this huge company retreat in Charleston that I was responsible for planning. And that was the four days leading up to my uh, egg retrieval. Oh my gosh, stop. <laughs> and I covered, I covered like five states. So I was like trying to, you know, figure out taking the meds with me if I went to like Kentucky and it was, it was a lot to juggle. Um, very ambitious when I could have just waited like a month or two to start IVF, but once you waited that long, I mean, you guys know, like everyone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we start, we did IVF and the week of the company conference, I was like making reservations. We had like full-blown meetings. I was making presentations. It was like a lot, um, booking Airbnbs, you name it. And, and doing shots all, all throughout, which was just really crazy. Um, so our, Egg retrieval went really well. I always like tell people this, it was like one of the best days of my entire life. And I feel so grateful because I know that that's not how it goes for most people. We got a ton of eggs and it was like, I mean, it was like better than my wedding day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, it was just, in, you know, and you see so much online and that's just not how it goes most of the time. Um, so we got a ton of eggs. Uh, ton of embryos we got like 14 embryos which was insane wow. um and yeah, started katie and i were doing ivf together and she did yeah. like, uh, i think you just like didn't respond to my text i was like how many did you get you're like i'm not telling you well and it's like, oh, never mind yeah and it's like the worst feeling ever because like you're excited and just it's like getting pregnant too when you're you're just surrounded by all these like connections that you've made in the infertility community like you feel so guilty but yeah. also you know um so yeah, we got 14 embryos were, um, suggested to not test them, um, because of like age and things like that. So we didn't test. We did our first transfer, um, around, uh, Halloween of 2021. And that one did not, uh, stick. So we kind of had the plan that if this embryo doesn't stick, then we're going to do testing. Um, cause we kind of really wanted to do testing. If there's obviously a any sort of chromosomal abnormality, it wouldn't show up in the grading of the embryo, how it looks like to the eye. Um, but it would be cause for miscarriage. So we didn't want to go through all the protocol of those dreaded progesterone shots with the huge needle and just to transfer something that was going to end in a miscarriage anyway. Um, so when the first one didn't stick, we're really devastated, but, um, 
we didn't did testing on the rest of them. Um, there was one that had a very rare abnormality. So we were glad we did the testing, but then the rest were, were good. Um, that's and so then, crazy. That so like, huge. so we don't know about the first one, but so 13, only one was genetically abnormal. Yes. Wow. That almost yeah. really points back again to the endo. Cause that's yeah. crazy good egg quality. Oh yeah. And, and it's like, and you know, he, this, the semen analysis that was like, had the morphology where there was no heads and tails, it did improve, but it never went to a hundred percent. So, um, I don't know if you guys have talked about it on the podcast, but ICSI is when they like inject sperm into the egg. So you don't have to like count on one of the sperm being strong enough to like do it themselves. Yeah. yeah. I don't think we have, but that's actually, that's what we did for our IVF, um, experience. But Amanda, I know you guys did the co- conventional where they just like, let the sperm yeah. go. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You'd think it would damage the egg by injecting it. Right. Or something. I, know. Like that. Yeah. But I guess it's kind of common, especially if there's any sort of issues with like morphology or anything like that. Yeah. I know the clinic that I was at in Charleston, that's all they did. They would not even do the alternative. I've heard that that's like more becoming like the norm that they do that instead. Does anybody know more guaranteed? Yeah, it is. Does anybody know what it stands for? ICSI. It's oh. I-C-S-I. Um, we'll figure it out. No. Maybe <laughs> injection for one of the eyes. Yeah. For, for, for the S. <laughs> anyway, so you did ICSI and you got your embryos and you now have 12 perfect embryos. Yes. Did you find out the genders or were you like, no, we're going to not? No. So I was like dying to know like what they were. Yeah. Um, and it was like another like Christmas present. We ended up with six boys and six girls. I was like, could not stop. That like, did yes. not happen. That's so crazy. I know it, it was really, really insane, but we wanted to be surprised, you know? So obviously we didn't know the first one cause they weren't tested. And then we went in for the second transfer. Um, and they said, you know, do you want to pick the gender or what do you want to do? And we said, just whatever is the healthiest one. We don't want to know. Um, so we did that transfer um, on December 14th of 2021, which was also the day that we moved into um, our new house. So we bought a house and our moving day was December 14th. And that was also transfer day. Oh my gosh. You really so transferred in the months. morning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess that's just like on, on brand for us with all the fertility <laughs> treatments. Um, so we did a transfer in the morning and then I like laid in the bed while my husband and his family moved us until it was time for me to get out of that bed and get into the other bed that was set up. So I just like, I mean, is it the worst thing for moving? Cause I mean, moving good for me, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, you can just move all the packages and all the boxes and everything. And I'll just lay here. Yes. I, I need to lay down, you know, it's important growing to your baby. Rest. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so that was a crazy day. Um, and you know, Obviously everyone's heard of all the, uh, different things to do to increase your chances, right? Like the French fries and the pineapple core and the figs and the, all the things, uh, uh, pomegranate juice, whatever. So I was doing all those wacky things, drinking like a gallon of bone broth a day. And I, I don't, I didn't take socks off until I took a pregnancy test only to shower. Like I, they didn't come <laughs> off of my feet. I'm glad it was Maybe. December because if it was summer, I would have looked like an idiot. I, I never took a sock off. Did feet. you, let me ask you this. Did you do all those things for the first transfer or was this like a redemption cycle? So I did some of them. I did the, the bone broth. 
uh, I think I drank some pomegranate juice and I was like, nah, that's not, that's <laughs> not going to work for me. Definitely did the transfer day, uh, French fries. Cause like, who doesn't want an excuse to eat French fries? Um, but the sock thing I actually read about, and I'm sure it doesn't actually do anything, but I read about it after my failed transfer that like keeping your feet warm helps. Doesn't it like quote unquote so. warm your uterus or something? I, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot hey, of my acupuncturist people. swears by it. So hey. I'm gonna say. <laughs> and it feels good. It's not like having warm feet is like a tough thing to get through, right? Yeah. If it could help. And it's like nice to have You're warm cozy. feet. Might as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, for some reason for the second transfer, I, I kept the bone broth, but I was like a psycho about the socks. I don't know. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, so I tested super, super early, um, and found out like six days after the transfer that we, it worked and we were pregnant. Um, and it was just like, just in time for the holidays, my parents were coming like two days later. So I had to come up with this like whole plan of like telling them, even though it was super early, um, so yeah, it was really, really incredible, obviously like having gone through all of that to get pregnant and then having the miscarriage before it's like bittersweet, terrifying being pregnant. Like you just, every single time I peed, I was like holding my breath that I wouldn't see blood, you know? Um, and the pregnancy itself, you know, if you do IVF or fertility treatments, a lot of times you're, um, kind of monitored by the fertility clinic first. So, um, I was going in like weekly for ultrasounds. Um, they wanted to do biweekly, but I was like, please, please, please let me come every week. Um, so they tracked me all the way. until it was time to be transferred to the OB. Um, there was a few hiccups in the pregnancy, um, that needed to be monitored, nothing crazy, but, um, they do a test around the anatomy, um, scan timeframe. Kat, do you know what that test is? Um, they test for, um, like abnormalities, like an NIPT. Yes. That's it. Yeah. We did that test and it came back, um, abnormal, like oh, elevated. Really? Yes. So basically they were saying it could just be like a false positive, or it would be like a sign of something. So you need to like, we need to really, really take a long look via ultrasound to see if we can see anything. So we had to start seeing a high risk, um, MFM at the hospital for ultrasounds, keeping an eye out for, um, those abnormalities, which is just really scary when they can't tell you they're like, oh, well, according to the blood work, like there's probably an issue, but we don't see it yet. We need to keep looking to see. Yeah. If, and it's such like, a, it's still like a couple of weeks between that testing and like your anatomy scan. Oh yeah. I'm sure even because they were like genetically tested the embryos that you were not expecting anything to even like pop up at all. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's strange. I mean, they do test for a lot with the, with the embryo testing, but there's so much still that, like in NIPT that it, that they don't cross over. Yeah. So uh, something interesting about that too. And I'm, did they recommend you getting like a CVS or anything like a no. So with like the NIPT, they get it actually like you could test positive for not positive, but you could test high indication for like down syndrome. And that actually is only in the placenta and it doesn't even have any, like those cells aren't in the actual baby. So then they like would go in with MFM and they would take like a sample of the placenta, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I mean, I wonder if that was the case for you that maybe there's just something bizarre in the placenta and not actually the baby. Well, and we'll get to it. I definitely had placenta drama for sure. Like I would, 
I, I'm very grateful that you grow a new one every time that you have a baby because like no one, I don't want anyone to have the, a placenta okay, like I had. Let's hear about it. Okay. So you get to your anatomy scan at the anatomy scan. Are they like, everything's good. Like we can move on from that. Yes. And I, if you do IVF, they do want to like have a closer eye on like the heart, I guess. Um, I don't know if there's some sort of correlation. So we were going to the MFM for that also. Um, but obviously a lot of relief with the anatomy scan that things looked good. Um, and then I had, um, I think it was like 30 weeks, um, maybe 29 weeks. I had an insane amount of bleeding. I went to the bathroom to starting my day and it was like worse than any period I've ever seen. I was a hundred percent convinced, like you don't have this much blood and like still have a baby. I didn't know that. It's terrifying. So scary. So, um, like I'm so grateful that my husband was home at the time because he travels for work and I don't know what I would have done. I just started screaming. He ran into the bathroom and I was like, we have to go to the hospital right this second. So we got in the car. I called the hospital, you know, the department ahead of time. And I'm like, Hey, we're on our way in. I think I'm having a miscarriage. Like I'm 30 weeks pregnant. I'm having all this bleeding. Um, and they basically like said, okay, we're ready for you. Like just come into this, you know, door, whatever. So we get there and we're just like crying, praying that when they hook us up, there's a heartbeat and like all this blood is just something else. Um, so they hook us up and she was just fine. She was thriving. She was like dancing in there, had absolutely, she was not bothered at all by all of the blood. So they were thinking, okay, this amount of blood is probably a placental abruption, which is when the placenta detaches from the uterus, either partially or fully. And then you could like bleed out. They basically have to do like an emergency C-section at that point. So the first hour we were there, that's what they thought that we were dealing with. And they were basically prepping me for an emergency C-section. Yes. So like, I wasn't allowed to eat or drink anything. Um, but it was at a hospital that doesn't have the, the correct level NICU. So they were going to have to do the emergency C-section and then immediately send the baby to another hospital. They weren't willing to put me in an ambulance to go to the, the hospital. They would take the baby out and send the baby immediately to the other hospital. So we were calling our family. We were like, the baby's coming out today. This is like so terrifying. This is not how I could have ever imagined this going. Like how is she, would she be okay if she came out this early? I wouldn't even be able to be in the same building to know what's going on. So it was absolutely terrifying. Um, throughout the course of that day, the bleeding randomly stopped on its own for no reason. The doctors were like, uh, huh. Okay. So they just kept me in there. Um, monitoring me, monitoring the baby, everything was fine. It's like, it never happened and they were nervous. So they just sent me that night at around midnight. I got transferred an ambulance to MUSC, the, the more, um, that the hospital that can handle. Yeah. Younger babies. Um, so then I was there for 24 hours and I mean, we, I just worked from the hospital. Like there was no, no more bleeding, no more drama, no, no, nothing. Baby was completely fine. Um, so then we went home (laughs) after two days of that. And then basically every, I started seeing the MFM weekly at that point. So I had weekly ultrasounds, the MFM and weekly, um, non-stress tests at my OB for the rest of the pregnancy. So I had, you know, two standing doctor's appointments a week from, from then on, which was obviously 
very reassuring. I appreciated being able to like, see how things were going. Yeah. I'm um, sure that just added not only pregnancy after loss, but then like this added complication, like when you get so close to the finish line. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and every time I met with the MFM and when I was talking to all the doctors in the hospital, I was like, okay, so if I go home, am I like, is this likely to happen again now? Because it's happened once. Um, and they were like, yeah, I mean, you could not bleed again and have a totally normal delivery on your delivery day without an induction or anything, or you could be back here tomorrow because it will keep caring. So it was very, very strange. I had to kind of alter how I was working. I had to stay like within 20 minutes of MUSC just in case, um, and really take it a little more easy. Um, but then so we did that all the way up until induction. And even then the placenta was causing issues. Um, after giving birth, I like immediately started hemorrhaging. They couldn't get the placenta out. It had, was like basically scar tissue attached to the uterus. So it was like a ton of bleeding. They thought I would need a transfusion. And then finally the doctor was like, that's it. We need to take her for a DNC. Um, I was like, it's almost like I was wasted because I was like, had lost so much blood. I was, it was all a blur. I didn't really know what was going on. I was like vomiting. It was really, really wild. Pretty um, much immediately after birth. Was there a delay or. So I started getting, um, like I lost a lot. It was, I had her on my chest. I would say probably for like five minutes, probably less than that. Wow. Um, and then I started getting really, really dizzy. I was not paying attention to what they were doing because I was just like staring at her and so excited. Um, my mom was in the room. So she was just like, uh, is this normal? Like, that's a lot of blood. Like what's going on here. And I was in la la land and I just start like lost a little bit of color every minute that went by and was like a little bit more like, you know, kind of dizzy. And my mom kept saying like, Hey, if you need someone to hold a baby, let us know if you need us to hold a baby. And I was like, no, yeah. <laughs> I just got her. Yeah. I worked so hard for this baby. You're not holding her. <laughs> and then it got to the point where I was just like, someone take the baby right now. And I, everything was kind of blurry after that. Um, but the reason they did the DNC was the doctor was concerned that um, the placenta obviously like, wasn't going to be coming, like didn't come all the way out because she had such a t- tough time getting it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just to make sure that it was all out, which it was, but I mean, there were like nurses taking pictures of my placenta. They were like, this is the ugliest placenta I've ever seen. What is wrong with this thing? Wait, and they what, sent was there some, Okay. I was going to say, was there something wrong with it? <laughs> I don't think there was anything wrong with it. I mean, nothing came back on the testing. Um, it was like rock hard, which is strange, which is why it was like extra hard to, to like remove it. Um, but it was like calcified. So it, there was a partial placental abruption. That's what caused the bleeding at 30 weeks. And do they find and that out at 30 weeks or at delivery? At delivery. They, yeah. They couldn't, they can't tell like oh. through ultrasound. Okay. Exactly. What goes on with the placenta. Yes. So when, when it was delivered, they were able to tell like, okay, this portion is just like really hard. And that's basically scar tissue. Cause it, it detached a little bit gotcha. and it healed like that. Um, yeah, just strange, very, very strange. Um, and what's interesting is there is a correlation I was told to the NIPT test being elevated with having placental issues. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of all wrapped up in 
a nice oh, that's I just never makes, heard yeah that. I feel like it just makes you feel so like thankful that like your daughter was okay made it to your induction date you delivered and I mean yeah definitely not the birth experience that you wanted in the aftermath so you're so did they did the baby go with your mom with Hunter or your husband or I mean you had to go right to surgery yeah. So they, um, they sent my husband to the nursery. And so he got to hold her, like do skin to skin in the nursery. So like, a, you know, the nurses could keep an eye and whatever, yeah. um, until I got back out. And then I I'm surprised they gave the baby to me right when I came back to start like trying to breastfeed because I was like very loopy. <laughs> yeah, they put, they obviously put you under anesthesia. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, right. I like basically woke up and then they put the baby on me. So I was like, please make sure I don't drop her. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have control over my limbs. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. It's, it was pretty crazy, but it's like, you know, the whole, none of it could have been easy. Right. Of course, after going through all of that to, to right. get pregnant, but it's just really insane that you're, that we're able to see what we can see these days. I'm like, I always say how grateful I am that I'm like living in the era that we're in, that IVF is a thing. And that like, you can do these monitoring, all this monitoring and like, see what's going on. And it's just like such a blessing. And so, you know, of course, now that she's here and healthy and the whole family's like, oh, she's going to give you trouble. Is there anything that you wanted to share with listeners or anything that you wanted to tell them that like with what your story and everything, just encouraging them or. Yeah. I mean, I think like the two big takeaways, like I wish that I could tell myself like a couple years ago is to like be selfish. You need like when you need to be selfish, right? Like if something doesn't serve you, if this isn't, you know, this isn't forever, this, it doesn't last forever. And people that love you, won't mind if you miss out on things, you know? Um, yeah. So, um, I think pretty much just like always being an advocate for yourself, not just like medically, like getting other opinions and things like that. Um, but from a mental health standpoint, right? Like if something's not good for you, don't do it. Um, if you need to sit out on a baby shower or if there's certain people that are just, tone deaf to you and they're not understanding or, or trying to, um, connect with you or learn about the journey enough to support you in the right way. Take a hiatus, right? Like it's not going to last forever. So if you need to maybe not be as close with a friend or a family member for a few years while you're getting yourself through this, then that's what you need to do. Um, and just be like super transparent and honest with people. Um, I, you know, I shared a good bit on like social media of what I was going through at the time, not to say like, I was not a fertility page by any means. Um, but there were so many people that came out of the woodwork with that. And I shared like, Hey, don't say things like this. It's not helpful. And I I've had so many people that, you know, old classmates or coworkers, whatever, that are like, my sister's going through this. I never, even I say this to her all the time. I never realized that was tone deaf and rude. Um, so just like being honest with people and looking out for yourself, I think is probably, yeah, the number one thing. I love it. Well, I I know you said like you do share on your social media, you have, and now obviously you have your daughter and it's beautiful and it's family, but, um, we'll tag your Instagram handle if you're okay with that. So people can reach out to you. Um, if they're going through like a similar journey that you went through. Yeah, absolutely.
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. We had a really good time.